Genesis 33, 1 through 11. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female slaves. He put the female slaves first, Leah and her sons next, and Rachel and Joshua last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the woman and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Now Esau, So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please. If I had found favor with you, take this gift from my hand. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face, since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Thank you so much, Ellie. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Genesis 32. She was reading from Genesis 33, and uh, we will get there. We will cover that passage, but that's going to serve really sort of as our climax. We're going to build up to that, and so before, as we build up to that, we're going to begin in Genesis 32. So, when last we left our friend Jacob. He had gone, he had fleed for his life, and he had gone to his uncle Laban. He ended up marrying more than once the daughter of Laban, so both daughters, and he had a bunch of kids, and we talked about the significance of that and what God was doing in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that deception and trickery that was going on in the family and, and all of the heartache that came about from some of those choices that these, uh, these people were making um, we're going to skip ahead a little bit um, from where we left off. We're going to miss some of the verse, some of the chapters uh, that continues on with Jacob's life. And so where we need to, need to pick up is you need to know that uh, Jacob eventually gets away from Laban. He, he takes his, his two wives and all of his children, and he actually gets uh, servants and actually some of Laban's riches. There's this whole deal about uh, the flocks and uh, different animals that are striped and spotted, and there's this whole deal that we won't get into. Uh, but he's actually pretty well off at this point. We talked last week about how uh, Laban got the better of Jacob when they first met up. He was a, so Laban deceived the deceiver, Jacob. But at the end, Jacob actually does pretty well for himself. He leaves, and he's got a lot of Laban's riches, and uh, Laban kind of goes after him, but eventually they make a covenant together, and they kind of part on good terms. And so we're going to pick up with uh, chapter 32, and uh, the title for tonight's message is Wrestling and Redemption. And tonight... We will talk about Jacob wrestling with the Lord. But I thought about this idea of wrestling and how, um, like, 
actual wrestling and what we call combat sports, so maybe like mixed martial arts or boxing where people are fighting one another for sport. And I was thinking about how sometimes when they're promoting their matches, when they're trying to get as many people as possible to actually come out to the live events or to watch it on TV or pay-per-view, uh, they will do different things to promote the matches, to build excitement. And one of the tried and true methods for promotion for some of these fights is something called the rematch, okay? So, so there was a big fight, and somebody won the big fight, but maybe there was some debate over whether he won the right way, or like maybe it was a really close match, and so the guy, the loser came back and said, I know I can beat him, and so, so what they'll do is weeks, maybe months later, they will, can, they will decide we're gonna fight again, we're gonna do it one more time. Now, I've never been a, like uh, someone who really followed um, like boxing, I've maybe just here and there, uh, like watched a couple of boxing matches, but so I don't really know a whole lot about the sport itself, but I have watched all the Rocky movies, okay? <laughs> so, so if you think back, and by the way, spoiler warning for a movie that came out back in 1976, so the, if you think back to the very first Rocky movie, it's the story of this, like, this kind of like poor, down on his luck kind of guy, but then building himself up, right? And he's training, and eventually he gets this match with the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. So Rocky Balboa versus Apollo Creed. And so spoiler warning, in that first movie, Rocky, the hero, does not win. And so it's, it ends in a draw, it's a tie, right? And so the movie goes to credits and it's over, and Rocky, the hero, does not win. So what do they have to do? They come out with Rocky II, right? It's the rematch. And so in Rocky II, finally, Rocky overcomes and he beats Apollo and he becomes the champion, right? So the rematch is a big deal. It's a re the re whether it's sports movies or actual sports, the rematch is something that we will go to over and over again. It builds um, this anticipation for us. What's gonna happen this time? Well, in tonight's text, Jacob has a rematch. In week one, session one, the text that we read told the story of him and his older brother Esau. And Jacob deceived Esau. He, he stole his birthright, he stole his blessing. And then he ran away, scared for his life. And Esau said, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. And so the reason why he fled to, to Laban that we talked about last week, uh, the reason why he's running is because he's fearful of what Esau is going to do. And he knows that this threat of Esau is still out there. And so finally, tonight, in the text that we will look at, Esau returns. So we're going to get there, but first there's some other things that happen. And so I want us to look first at at. Genesis 32, beginning in verse one. So he's, he knows that Esau's out there. He knows that Esau is coming for him. And so he's making preparations. And so the very first thing that we see, we'll put this up on the screen, is that Jacob readied himself. Jacob readied himself. He's preparing. He knows that Esau's coming for him and he's making preparations. And so let's read these verses. We'll read verses one through 12 and we'll uh, see what he does. All right, so verse one, Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of this place Manahinam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, the country of Edom, 
instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I would be too if my older brother who wanted to kill me was coming with 400 of his friends. So he divides his people who are with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for which only my staff crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers of the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. All right, so Jacob is making preparations. He's getting ready for Esau. He knows that Esau is on his way and he's bringing 400 people with him. He's bringing an army with him. So he makes preparations and so he does a couple of things. And so it's interesting as the story of Jacob progresses, we see in some instances that he, maybe he's maturing a little bit. Maybe he's getting better. Maybe he's growing in the Lord a little bit as God has more influence on his life, as God has begun to reveal himself to Jacob. But through all of that, we still constantly see these glimmers of his, his, his natural self, his sinful self. And so we're gonna see a little bit of that here. Uh, so as he's making these, pre, uh, these preparations, first we see that he plotted, he plotted. Like he is, he's still a natural schemer, right? He still is like, all right, I gotta figure out a way here. I know that Esau is coming after me, so I've gotta figure out a way to get out of this. He's not going to face him like a man. He's not gonna take his servants or he's not gonna try to build an army himself to go and fight Esau. No, he's going to try to figure out some things. Um, he's gonna set up a plan to get away if he can. And so uh, we see this, uh, he, he, he divided his camp into two different camps. And so the idea is that, well, if we're gonna split everybody up, and, and maybe like you'd imagine like Jacob maybe being in the middle somewhere, right? And so, well, if, if Esau comes from this way and he attacks this camp, well, then we can run that way with the other folks. Or if he, from this direction, well, then the other one can escape, right? And so he's got this plan. This is, this is again, his scheme that he has concocted in order to, once again, just run away with his life if he's able to do so. And in addition to that, he is kind of testing the waters here. He had sent some servants out to go find Esau and he, he kind of sends this message. But if you notice the language in the message, every time he is referring to Esau, he's saying, my Lord Esau. And every time he refers to himself, he says, your humble servant Jacob, right? And so if you look at that language, like he is, he's doing everything he can to, uh, hopefully divert some of the anger. He's trying to like compliment Esau. It's like, oh, great, my Lord, Esau, your humble servant, Jacob. Just, and so he's, 
And we're going to see some of that as we continue. Like he is doing everything he can to ensure that maybe when Esau arrives, he won't be quite as mad at me. So he's just plotting. He's continuing to scheme. But we do see, in uh, beginning in verse 9, that he is beginning to trust in the Lord as well. So not only do we see that he plotted, he also prayed. He prayed. And we see this prayer recorded in, in verse 9. And actually, so I turned these notes in so they could be up on the screen. I, I, like, I think this was on Thursday, and then I started studying it some more over the weekend. And so I almost, like, I was kind of wishing I could have uh, gone back and changed this one. But not only did he pray, he also pleaded. And so if you want to, like, say Jacob pleaded, you might put that in your notes as well. Because if you look at the verses um, in, in this, starting with verse 9, where he's, He's praying. He is just, he's saying, oh God, my father. Like he's, he's just uh, like conveying to the Lord how desperate he is because he knows that there is absolutely nothing he can do against Esau. There's nothing he can do. If, if it does come down to a fight, if there is some kind of battle, he knows he is without hope. The only hope that he has is, well, Typically, he rests upon himself and his, his own intelligence to get out of these situations. But in this instance, he realizes that his only hope is in the Lord. So uh, I want to put verses 11 and 12 up on the screen if we can. And so I'm going to look at this part of his prayer. He says he's talking to the Lord, and he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children, but you said, talking to the Lord, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So a couple of things I want to point out to you. First, this first phrase, please deliver me. As he's going to the Lord, he is, like I said, we, he's, like we said, he's pleading. He's saying, God, please save me. Please rescue me. He's no longer resting on himself and his own intelligence to be able to scheme his way out of this. Instead, he is saying, God, I'm trusting in you. You're the one who's going to rescue me. If, if I'm going to survive this, it's only going to be because of your mercy and your grace in my life. Please deliver me. And then we get this rare moment of honesty. Like, he's the deceiver. He's the liar. And, and a lot of times when, even if you are afraid, like a man doesn't want to admit that, right? You want to cover that up. You want to make it seem like you're stronger than you really are. But when he's praying and pleading to the Lord, what does he say? For I fear him. He's admitting to the Lord how afraid of Esau he is. And then he actually says to the Lord, he's, he's reminding God of the promise that God had earlier made to him. He says, but you said... I will surely do you good. Like how he, he was gonna do all these good things in the life of Jacob. And he says, God, you said you're gonna do some great things in my life. You can't do great things in my life if I'm dead. And so please, Lord, please rescue me. Please deliver me from my brother Esau. And so, uh, so that's this, this rare moment where he is actually turning to the Lord and, and seeking, uh, seeking rescue from him. And so he's making all these preparations. And then the story actually takes a pretty abrupt turn. Okay. So we're, we're building up to this encounter, this rematch between Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob does have an encounter with someone and is a really significant encounter. But it's not with Esau, it's actually with the Lord himself. And so 
I want to skip ahead to verse 22, and I want to, the next thing that we're going to talk about is how Jacob wrestled with God. So first, he readied himself, and then he wrestled with God. Let's read verse 22. We'll read all the way through 31. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and he was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. All right. So Jacob has this encounter with God. He wrestles with God. Well, so it says he, he sees a man. But then after the encounter is over, we can see that this is not just a normal man. And when at the end of it, he says, I have seen God face to face. So in reference to this man, he says, that he's, he says, I've seen God. Now, there's a whole lot of theological things going on right here. All right. Um, there's a whole lot of debate over who this really is. Is this, uh, is, this, is this God the Father? Is this an angel? Is this what we call a Christophany, another big theological word? This is um, the pre-incarnation Son of God uh, actually appearing in the flesh in the Old Testament. So there's a whole lot of stuff. And so we don't have the time to really dive into all that. Sorry if you have questions about that that we're not going to answer today because... Uh, what we really want to focus on is the story of Jacob and how Jacob is affected by this encounter that he has with the Lord. So, so how is Jacob changed as a result of this wrestling match that he has? And so there are two things that he receives as a result, maybe more, but there are two that I want to point out to you. And first, he has a new walk, a new walk. Now, in the church, and like using spiritual terminology, when someone has an encounter with the Lord, when the Lord reveals himself to people and we respond to him and we're gonna change our, who we are and he's gonna change who we are as, as a result of what he's done in our lives, we talk a lot about having a new walk, how we put the old self to death and we walk in the new life, the, the old man and the new man, right? Um, when we, uh, when someone uh, professes Christ as Savior, and then they go through with baptism. We use that language a lot in the baptism, right? We're buried with Christ in baptism, and you're raised to walk in the newness of life. And so there is some of that happening in Jacob's life. He, he is encountering God. He does have this profound spiritual moment with the Lord, but it's not just the spiritual idea of walking with the Lord or a new walk in that sense. Like, he literally is walking differently than he did before. See, they're wrestling, and it says they wrestled all night long. And 
And it says that the man's not able to prevail against Jacob, which seems weird to us, right? Like, if this, if this man is the representation of God, and he's wrestling with God, how in the world is Jacob able to wrestle this long with the Lord? Well, if you go ahead and put verse 25 up on the screen, what we see is that it says that when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So look what he did right here. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So what we should take from this is that the man that Jacob was wrestling, the Lord, was able to finish this fight at any point that he wanted to. The only reason Jacob was able to struggle and strive in this wrestling match for so long is because the Lord was allowing it. Because he was wanting to teach Jacob something. And then at the end, when it was time for it to be over, with a simple touch, he's able to end the fight and Jacob's hip is put out of socket. And uh, so if he's able to do that with just a touch, imagine what he could do if he wanted to actually cause some damage, right? And so he touches his hip socket, and from this point forward, Jacob is going to walk differently. He is going to walk with a limp. We actually see in the next verse. So, so the, the next verses that I want to put on the screen, verses 30 and 31, it says, so he's, uh, he says, so he called the place, Peniel, saying, for I have seen the face of God, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So even there, we can see that he's like even surprised at the fact that he even survived this. So Jacob isn't thinking to himself, oh man, I wrestled with God all night long and I put up a good fight. No, he's admitting, like, I've, I've seen God face to face. And, and I made it through, like, because when sinful people are in the presence of the Lord, apart from his mercy, that sinfulness is going to be put to death. And so he says, I'm rejoicing because I've seen God face to face and my life has been delivered, but then he is forever changed. He is limping because of his hip. He has a new walk. And so from this point forward, anytime people see him, anytime he's out in public or he's interacting with other people, they're gonna look at him and they're gonna notice, hey, Jacob's walking a little differently. He's, he's changed, something has happened to him, something profound has happened to him. His life has been impacted, and now he is different. And like we said, that is exactly what happens when God impacts our lives, when God changes us, and when God reveals his power to us. We should walk differently. There should be something different about how we walk, how we navigate, life. And uh, this, this verse, his, the way he rejoices over surviving this encounter and the, 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 the limp that he has now because of his injured hip, it just reminds me that sometimes in order to, to stop us from receiving a greater punishment from our sins, God sometimes has to give us this, this earthly punishment. Like he's got to maybe like uh, slap our hands, or maybe something more significant than just a hand slap, but he's got to cause some damage in our lives just to get our attention, right? Like he's got to let us feel some of those negative consequences in order for, to get our attention, to get us to flee and run away from the sinfulness that we keep following. 
And I believe that's similar to what's happening here is that he has to get Jacob's attention. He has to wound him. But this wounding that he, uh, that he does in Jacob's life, it just reminds me of the Psalm uh, of David, Psalm 51, when, when David is, he's writing these words as a response to his own sinfulness and how God did a work in his life and, and actually caused him to face some very significant consequences as a result of his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and how he tried to cover up that sin and actually caused the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And in Psalm 51, verse eight, he writes, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Because God does sometimes have to wound us, inflict pain on us to get our attention, to get us to run away from our old selves and the sinfulness that just comes natural to us. But when he does have to break our bones, we should rejoice over that. Because as he gets our attention, that is his mercy on us. Because we deserve a much greater punishment. And he's using this temporary punishment to cause us to run away from our sin and to run toward him. So Jacob has a new walk. In addition to that, Jacob has a new name. He has a new name. Let's uh, look back now at verses 27 and 28. As they're struggling, he says, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So in verse 28, he gets this new name, Israel. And I just wanna go ahead and tell you that next week, we will dive all the way into this new name and what it means and the significance of it and what it's gonna mean for Jacob moving forward and for generations on. We're going to hold that for next week. Uh, this week, though, we are gonna focus on his name, but we're actually gonna focus some on, on the process that God is using to change it and make, causing him to reflect back on his old name, Jacob, and, and what that really means. So. So this man that he's wrestling with, we said this is a representation of God. In verse 27, he asked Jacob what his name is. Well, if this is God, why is he needing to ask his name, right? God already knows who he is. This is another instance where God is trying to teach Jacob something. There is a specific reason why he's asking this question. And in order to uh, explain why God is asking Jacob what his name is, I wanted us to go backwards in the story a little bit. We're gonna flash back to, to week one uh, in Genesis 27. We can put Genesis 27 verses 18 and 19 on the screen right here. This is uh, just a reminder of the last time in this story someone else asked Jacob who he is, asked Jacob what his name is. This is going back to when Jacob is pretending to be Esau standing before his, his old, blind, close to death, Father Isaac. So it says that he, he went into his father and says, my father, and he said, here I am. And then Isaac asked, who are you, my son? And Jacob answers, he lies to his father, and he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. So if we go back in the story, the last time someone asks Jacob, who are you? What is your name? Jacob being Jacob, a liar and a deceiver, 
he lies. And he says, he says, I'm somebody else. I'm not Jacob, I'm somebody else. I am Esau, your firstborn, right? And we talked about this um, before when he says, I am Esau, in week one, we said that this is just an illustration of how Jacob is willing to do whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. It doesn't, like he's willing to lie to his own father who's, who's sick and blind and almost about to die. But he wants that blessing and he's willing to do whatever it takes. Then we go back, we pick up where we left off in, in tonight's story, back in Genesis 32. Let's put verse 27 on the screen. Now, he's not, it's not his father, Isaac, asking him who you are, what is your name? Now, it is our heavenly father, it is the Lord asking him, what is your name? And this time he responds honestly, and he says, Jacob. Now again, there's much more happening here than just an introduction. Like, hey, who are you? Jacob. There's, there's a whole lot more going on right here. So God already knows who he is, but he wants him to say it out loud. He wants him to admit who he is. And when he says his name, Jacob, we need to remember back to what the name Jacob actually means. We said it literally means someone who grasps at the heel. And so I think I use the image of like a foot race. And so if someone, like you're racing someone, but you know the other person is faster, you wanna win the race, what you can do is grasp at that person's heel and that's gonna trip them, cause them to stumble and to fall. And so that's what Jacob's all about, right? Like, what can I do to cause everybody else around me to stumble and fall so that I can gain an advantage over them? He is a deceiver, he is a liar. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. So when he says, my name is Jacob, he's not just introducing himself, he's confessing his sins before the Lord. He is saying, I'm a deceiver. He's saying, I am a liar. I am somebody who is willing to take advantage of my family in order for, my own, in order for me to receive personal gain for me to get whatever I want. I'm willing to do, I'm a person who is willing to do whatever it takes, no matter how uh, morally deficient it is to get whatever it is that I want. He says, what is your name? I am Jacob. He's not just saying his name, he is confessing his sins before the Lord. But then, God gives him a new name. You are no longer going to be this person. You are no longer going to be this liar, this deceiver, this, this horrible person. And it's gonna take a while to get there, right? And that's the way it is for all of us, though. When, when God saves us, we, all of our old sins, our old self doesn't just immediately go away. There's this process of sanctification, and we're already beginning to see some of that in the life of Jacob as he is taking steps in the right direction. And by God's grace, he is being sanctified. And this new name, Israel, is not just a new name for Jacob. Like I said, we're gonna talk more about this next week, but this is the name that the nation that comes from Jacob will bear and that will be known throughout all the rest of history, the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people. So this is a big deal. This new name, there are lots of times when, uh, when people get new names in the Bible, but this is a very significant event in the history of God's people. They are given this name Israel. So, 
he, he had to ready himself, but then while he's readying himself, he has this encounter with the Lord, he wrestles with God, and then we get to the place where we actually began with reading the, the scriptures, chapter 33, when Jacob is reconciled with Esau. You see, he had to go through this experience with the Lord in order for him to properly be prepared for this encounter he's about to have, this rematch that he's about to have with his older brother Esau. And so this happens. It, they, they actually do come back together. They do meet again. And you might be thinking that there's gonna be this epic encounter, right? But the rematch doesn't go anywhere like anyone is expecting. It goes a completely different direction. And so there are two things I want us to look at uh, tonight about this reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. I wanna look at Jacob's actions and then I wanna look at Esau's actions. So first, Jacob's actions point to the sinfulness of man. That shouldn't be surprising for us. Pretty much everything Jacob does shows us how sinful men can be, right? But even in this, we continue to see the old Jacob, the old man kind of rearing its ugly head in his life. He's, remember back at the beginning when he was plotting and trying to do all these things to uh, just, and he actually admits, I'm doing all this so that I can get Esau's favor. Like, and so it, it kind of comes across as it's not really genuine. He's just, he's trying to do whatever he can do to protect himself and to uh, make Esau maybe even go easy on him or um, to not uh, hurt him or kill him. And so look at some of the things he does. Uh, Genesis 33, verse two, we'll put that up on the screen. So the first thing he does, it says that he puts, so he knows that Esau is coming from a certain direction. And so he's got his camps. And so what he does is he puts all the servants up front. Like, so he's got a lot of servants at this point in the story. And so, all right, all of the servants go up to the front. Like, I want Esau to see you first. I want him to have to come through you. And you know what? Take your kids with you. Yeah, we'll put the kids on the front lines too. Like, so all the servants and all the children, you go up to the front. And then um, he's got, remember, he's got two wives, but he likes one better than the other one. It's like, oh, Leah, you're the one I don't like as much. All right, you go next. You go next. And um, you've got a lot of kids. You've got more sons. And so we're going to put you and those kids up next, right? And then way in the back is my favorite wife and my favorite son. And, and then I'll be back here too and we wanna make sure that these people are protected more. So again, he's, he's scheming and he's trying to do everything he can to protect what he cares most about. And then when he does go on ahead in verse three, we put Genesis 33 verse three up. Um, it says that he himself went on before them, but when he does, he's, He's bowing on the ground. It says he bows seven times until he came near to his brother. And, and again, just in my mind, this seems like some more of that, um, like not very genuine, trying to like butter Esau up a little bit, right? He called him Lord in the message, says I'm the servant. Now he's bowing down to him. And as the family comes up, they're all gonna bow down too, right? And so it's, it's again, it's an example of Jacob doing whatever he can to hopefully survive this encounter. So Jacob's actions point us to the sinfulness of man, but Esau's actions point us to the sacrifice of Christ. Esau's actions point us to the sacrifice of Christ. Now, this probably takes us off guard a little bit, and it should. 
You see, in, when you're preaching through a book of the Old Testament or any kind of Old Testament sermon, as from a Christian perspective, uh, we wanna see how we can uh, look at this passage of scripture and see how it points us to Jesus. We've tried to do that the last two weeks and we wanna do that again tonight. But one of the ways that if you, if you go to seminary or read books about preaching and teaching, one of the things when you're preaching through an Old Testament passage, one of the things that you are, can be trained to do is look for what we call types of Christ. And so this is an, an idea of an Old Testament character doing something in their Old Testament story that points to things that Jesus would do later on, okay? And so uh, we actually, so types of Christ, so people in the Old Testament doing things that remind us or point us to what Jesus is going to do in their future, but it's our past. And so we haven't seen much of that in the story of Jacob, have we? We haven't seen very many characters in the story and we can point to them and say, hey, that's like what Jesus did. We haven't been able to see that. All we've seen for the first two weeks, just a bunch of brokenness and a bunch of sinfulness. And, and what we've had to say is that despite all this brokenness and sinfulness, God is still faithful and God is still working. But now in week three, we finally get one. We finally find somebody who is acting like Jesus is going to act. And of all people, it's Esau, right? Remember the, uh, the real passionate, like short-sighted brother who's real foolish and neglects his blessing and marries some Hittite women? Like, he's the guy who's going to point us to Jesus. Because remember, in week one, in the first sermon on this, this story of Jacob, he has been deceived, he's been swindled out of what is rightfully his according to law, and he's very angry about it, and he says, I'm going to kill my brother, Jacob. And if this story had been written a little bit differently, if he actually did kill his brother Jacob back then, I don't think any of us would have been real upset about it. We would have been like, yeah, Jacob had that coming. But that's not what happens. And so now we're expecting, as he comes back, maybe he really is going to kill him. Maybe he is going to attack him or at least get something, right? He's gonna beat him up at least. But that's not what we see at all. Genesis 33, verse four, let's put that up on the screen. It says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck, like giving him a really big hug. It says, and he kissed him and they wept. This is not a story of revenge. This is a story of reunification. See, Jacob wrongfully sinned against Esau, and Esau was rightfully upset about it. Now, maybe what he was planning to do would have been taking things a little too far, but like he was, he was the one that was wronged, and it was right for him to desire some kind of justice. And now he has the opportunity, but instead of enacting that justice or taking this into his own hands, what we see is Esau setting aside his, what was, what, at least in the past, were his own desires of what he wanted in response to what Jacob had done to him, what we see is him running back to his younger brother and embracing him and loving him despite how he had sinned against him. We see Esau exhibiting grace and mercy. We see Esau of all people pointing us to Jesus. Because we have sinned against God 
And God in his holiness and in his justice is completely within his right to punish us for our sinfulness and to punish us for all eternity. But God so loved the world, God so loved us that he chose to make a way for us to be saved instead. He, he exhibited grace and mercy and he sent his perfect son, Jesus, to make a way of salvation for us. Then I want to look at verse 10. It says, so Jacob had had this whole, like this, I guess, a gift of, of riches and, and different things he was going to give to Esau. And so, and Esau is like, I don't even want that. I'm just happy to see you. I just want to uh, embrace my younger brother. I'm happy that we're together again. And so Jacob says, no, please, if you have found, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. If there's anybody who should know what it's like to see the face of God, it's Jacob, because just before this, he's wrestling with God all through the night. So wrestling, holding somebody, he's probably like right at eye level with that man who's representing God. But this still should take us a little bit off guard, right? If you think back, he's talking to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. If you remember back to week one, we had two words that described Esau's physical appearance. They were red and hairy. So he's saying, wait, looking at Esau's big, red, hairy face is like looking at the face of God? That doesn't sound quite right, does it? But it's got more to do with his actions, way less to do with his appearance. He says, you have accepted me. You have seen past my sin. You have chosen to forgive me, despite the fact that you were fully in your rights to come after me and to take back from me what really should have belonged to you. And so Esau forgives his brother and and Jacob responds by wanting to, to provide for him, to give something back to him. Let's look at verse 11. He says, please accept my blessing. What was it that Jacob stole from Esau? A blessing. And so now he's trying to bless him back in return. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And thus he urged him and he took it. So remember, again, this is Jacob, the guy who wants to do whatever he can to get as much as he wants. He's going to scheme and he's gonna lie and, and trick people and deceive people. And he's gonna say, I wanna get more and more and more and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get it. But in this moment, after he has encountered God face to face and wrestled with him, after he has received a new walk and a new name, and now after he has been forgiven by his older brother, his attitude is changing. And he doesn't say, I want more and more. No, he says, I have enough. See, when God enters into our lives and he blesses us in the way that he has worked in the life, the life of this, this horrible, wretched man named Jacob, and we receive those kinds of blessings in our lives, and we accept them and acknowledge them for what they truly are, then that is when we can look at what God has done in our lives and we can say, this is enough. We can stop trying to, to gain more and more out of life. 
we can, we can stop trying to, to lie to people, to make them think differently of us so that we can have more power over different people or, or, or get more things in life, more material possessions. We can say, no, whatever God chooses to give me, that is enough. Even if there are no material possessions, we can look at how God sent his son Jesus for us. That, that Jesus gave his life for us to make a way of salvation for us and that all we have to do is repent of our sin, place our faith in him, confess him as Savior and Lord. Tonight, we wanna offer you the opportunity to come forward. Maybe you need to talk with someone in our decision counseling room, which is right over here. Maybe you need to come and, and pray at this altar before us and you need to do business with the Lord. I wanna invite you, maybe you can even do that in your seat tonight. But we want to also respond through worship as we lift our voices to the Lord tonight and say, Christ is enough. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you have chosen to forgive and redeem us, God, through the work of your son, Jesus. God, thank you that that no matter how badly we sin or no matter how badly we, we turn back to our sins, even if we are, have already come to know Christ as Savior and we are still struggling with our old lives, our old sinfulness, God, that you still love us and you still redeem us and you are still working in us just like you never gave up on Jacob. You never give up on us. Lord, help us to see that the the so-called riches of this world are never going to satisfy us. Help us to see that you are enough. Lord, we praise you. In the name of your son, we voice this prayer. Amen. Let's stand together.